Follow along as I read. The scene is in heaven. John has been given a glimpse of the heavenly realm, the angelic realm, and an opportunity to see the throne of God and those who are gathered around the throne in worship. The image begins in chapter five, chapter 4 where he sees the throne and then sees some of the, 24, some of the uh, elders, 24 elders around the throne, the four living creatures, and there's an ex- extended description of those creatures that are around the throne and some of what is being said about God at the throne. And then that vision is expanded in chapter 5. Follow as I read. I saw the right hand, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, was able to open the book or to look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, to Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Our Father, 
We come to you on this day with immense joy because of the life that is to be found in the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. The disciples said it in the middle of his ministry when he asked them if he would depart as the crowds were departing from him. And they said, no, Lord, to where would we go? You have the words of life. There is life to be found in the teaching of Jesus Christ, but there is life to be found ultimately in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Him there is life, and there is life in Him like there is life in no one else and nowhere else. If we are not alive in Him, we are not alive. And so we come this resurrection morning with immense joy, gratitude, satisfaction. And we come with deep humility for this truth about the resurrected Christ has been revealed to us. We who were, who were unworthy, we who had no power to take the scroll out of the hand of the Father, We who had no ability to stand before Him with any kind of righteousness that would appease Him. We who are broken, enslaved by sin. That people, God has revealed the truth of the resurrected Christ to and made salvation available to us. And so we come with joy and with humility And even as this passage that is before us culminates, we also come with worship. We come singing praises to you. We come with thankfulness to you. We come declaring your rightness to one another and to the nations. And we come bowing, giving to you our lives in worship. For we have only you in heaven and we have only you on earth. And there is none other that is worth serving because there is none other that can make us alive. And so would you guide us this morning as we think about the Savior who was slain, the Savior who was resurrected, and the Savior who is exalted in glory. Would you guide us to deeper Satisfaction in Him, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ. No day on our calendar of worship demands or demonstrates our dependence on Jesus Christ more than Easter morning. On this day, we affirm that we need Him and we will worship Him above all things and above all people. But on this day, where will we go to see the exaltedness of Jesus Christ? Where will we go to see the authority of Jesus Christ? We could go to the Old Testament and prophecies of His coming. We could go back as far as Deuteronomy 18 and the the promise of one who would come to save Israel. We could go to passages like Isaiah 53 and the promise of the atonement from the suffering servant, the Messiah. 
We could go to passages like Zechariah 14 and his soon second coming and his exaltation on the earth and his messianic rule. We could go to the New Testament. We could go to the Gospels and the appearance of the incarnate God-man in his birth. So we could go to passages like Luke chapter 2. What power and humility are demonstrating in the conjoining of humanity to divinity. The most singular birth in the history of the world. We could go to the cross. We could go to the most unique death in history. The only event in human history in which a man voluntarily gave up his life. And voluntarily controlled the instant of his death. We could go to the resurrection. And we could go to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. What Spurgeon says is the place, quote, where God's glory is most seen. And these are all worthy passages. These are all worthy topics to consider on resurrection morning. This morning I want to take you to a passage perhaps you don't think about when you think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to take you to a different scene. I want to take you to a heavenly scene. If you will, the last scene of the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 5. This chapter, as I noted as we read it, is a continuation of Revelation chapter 4. In these chapters, we get a glimpse of the throne room of God. The word throne is used 17 times in these two chapters. And we see the triune Godhead all circulating around that throne. The Father seated on the throne, the Son at the throne, and the Son controlling the Spirit from the throne. These chapters anticipate the coming judgment of God. We will see that in chapter 6 if we would take the time to go there. And this chapter, chapter 5, particularly points to the worthiness of Christ to judge sinners that begins in, in Revelation chapter 6 and to provide redemption for sinners and His worthiness to be worshipped. Though not stated explicitly, The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are at the center of his worthiness and they pervade this chapter. This heavenly picture is an extension of the work of Christ on resurrection morning. And it is a reminder to us that when we follow the resurrected Christ, we have not wasted our lives. The heavenly vision of this chapter of the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ teach us this principle The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ reveal His worthiness to redeem, rule, and be revered for all of eternity. In this chapter, we find the redemption of Jesus Christ through His death and resurrection. We find His rulership over all of humanity and His rulership even that extends to His ability to judge all peoples who do not trust in Him and His worthiness to be revered, to be worshipped for all of eternity. This chapter flows directly out of his resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation. And it is a fine picture of the sweetness, the grandeur, the delight of the resurrected Christ. In this passage, we will observe three heavenly vignettes that demonstrate the exalted worthiness of Christ. The first vignette begins with a question. And the question simply is, who is worthy? 
As we move into this scene in chapter 5, we find, first of all, a great dilemma about worthiness. As I noted, this scene is a continuation of chapter 4. The first, the first word in this chapter actually is untranslated in my translation, the New American Standard, the ESV and the New uh, um, Legacy uh, Standard Version, which is based on the NAS, uh, give the good tra- a good translation, then I saw on the right hand. And it's, it's a connective word that connects us to the previous passage. John wants us to see the connection between this vision in chapter 5 and the vision that is given in chapter 4. And when this scene is revealed to the Apostle John, he sees a number of things in the heavenly picture. He sees God on his throne, he sees a book, and he sees an angel. First, he sees God. Verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. I saw one who was on the throne. Though unidentified, it is clear that the only one who could be on that throne and the one that he saw is God himself. There is one heaven, there is one throne in heaven, and there is only one person who is capable of sitting on that throne. Others are around that throne, and we see this, and we will see that in increasing measure throughout this chapter. But only one who is, there is only one who is worthy to be seated on that throne, and it is the one who is supremely authoritative. We see that authority in that thing that is in his hand. The text says, I saw in the right hand of him. The word is not just in, that he is grasping it, but it is in upon. So it is an open-palmed hand, and there is on the open palm resting a book. It is as if God is extending the book and he's asking the question, who will take this from me? Who has the right to take it? Who has the power to take it from the one who is God himself? He is holding in that book, in his hand, that book. And the fact that he is holding it, the fact that it rests in his hand indicates that he is in control of that book. He has initiated everything that is within that book. And he is controlling what happens through that book and out of that book. He's invited someone. Come. Take the book. And already we find something of an implied dilemma. Who can approach the throne of God himself and take the book out of his hand? We've already alluded to it. He sees not just the throne of God and God himself, but he sees the book. The book is more literally a scroll, and the scroll has been rolled up and then placed on God's hand. Most scrolls were simply written on one side, but the text is clear. There is enough writing on this scroll that it necessitated being written on both the top side and the bottom side. So it is written top and bottom, front and back, if you will. It, it is complete in its revelation. It is, it is to, total in its revelation. It is a comprehensive counsel that comes from God. It is, it is the fullness of God's revelation. Nothing needs to be added to this revelation. He has written everything there is to be written about this topic that is inside this scroll. 
He also tells us that the scroll is sealed. It is sealed up with seven seals. And we might think that it is sealed like seven right at the end of the scroll, holding down that last part of the page. But it is clear that as he opens it, there are successive seals. So he has one seal on the outside and that seal gets broken and the roll gets opened a little bit and then he comes to another seal. That one will get broken and then it is opened a little bit more and coming to a third seal and sequentially through the scroll. So there are successive seals inside the scroll. The fact that the apostle can see them means that it's probably sealed at the end, at the top or the bottom, if you will, but inside that scroll. What is significant about those seals is that it, it's shut up. It's closed. And the implication is, is that not anyone can open it. Not anyone can have access to this scroll. Scrolls and seals were used in secular culture often for testimonies and for wills. And they could only be opened in court by an appropriate person. Not just anyone could open it. It had to be opened by the authorized person to open it. And so the seals on this scroll authenticate the scroll. They authenticate the one who wrote it. And the implication is not just anyone can take this scroll. And even if you can take it, not just anyone can open it. It takes a unique person to be able to open and read and understand and act on what is contained in this scroll. It is also clear that the events in this scroll are known only to God. It's his scroll. It's his writing. It's his book. It's in his hand. And he authorizes how and when it will be revealed. It's entirely dependent upon him. It comes from him and through him. It is only him. Now the question is, and maybe you've had it. Maybe you're wondering why I haven't said anything about it yet. All the commentators certainly have it. And the question is, what's in the book? Well, the short answer is, I don't know. I don't have access to it. I can't get to the throne. And even if I could get to the throne, I don't have the authority to take the scroll. But there are some hints about what is in this scroll. Some have suggested that the book is a story of man's loss of his lordship over creation and the regaining of that authority by the God-man Jesus Christ. And that's indicated by the opening of the seventh seal. And when the seventh seal is opened, seven trumpets blow successively. And when the seventh trumpet that comes from the seventh seal is broken or blown, the seal's broken, the trumpet blows. Got to keep my analogy straight. It says this in 1115. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. There's a hint what's in the scroll. Christ is retaking lordship over this earth and indicating that he is subjecting all things to himself. And so some have entitled this the book of redemption. 
I think even more precisely, it's not just the book of redemption. It is clear that with the opening of the seals, God is pouring out his judgment on unredeemed man on this earth. We will see this in chapter six, verse one. And then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, the first seal, and I heard one of the first living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder come and I looked And behold, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. And thus begins the judgment of God against unredeemed man on this earth and it's coming from the seals that are broken in this book. Well, we can't be exactly certain of the contents of this book. What is clear is that the book is authoritative like no other book. And it must be opened. Who's going to open it? Verse 2. And I saw a strong angel. He not only sees God, he not only sees God on his throne, he sees, secondly, an angel. Who's this angel? Some have suggested that it could be Gabriel or Michael. Uh, That's certainly possible. Um, He does denote that it is a strong angel. We know angels on their own are strong, as I alluded to the other night. Isaiah 37 tells us that one angel on one one night killed 185,000 Assyrians. That's some serious firepower. And this one, from among all the other angels, is denoted as being strong. And we can take from that he is particularly strong. He is astoundingly strong. And he speaks with a strong voice. Notice he says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. He, he has an ability to, to sing or to declare through the heavens this question. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? The word worthy indicates someone who is fit, someone who is deserving. But beyond that, it means something else. It means someone who has rank and authority and power to read and to carry out the dictates of the scroll. Who has the character to walk up to the throne of God and to take the scroll from the hand of God and then carry out that scroll? Who can do that? Notice here is a an angel, sinless. Never sinned because he's in the presence of God, has not been cast out. He is not just an angel, but he is an angel with authority and power. He is delineated as someone who is particularly strong. He is the one that is going to make the declaration about this book. He obviously has an exalted position in heaven. And he's asking the question, who is worthy? And by that question, he means I'm not. Who can open the book? Who can break its seals? And it was clear, verse 3, that there was no one in heaven. All of redeemed mankind that is already in heaven at this time, all of the angelic realm that is in heaven at that time, none in heaven could open that book. And there is no one on the earth that can open the book. 
There is no one under the earth. There is no one who has died. There is no one in the pit of hell that can open the book. Satan is not strong enough to open the book. The fact that he asks the question means that he is incapable and he also means that that everyone else is incapable as well. I'm getting so excited I'm forgetting about my outline. (laughs) Who's worthy? We have a great dilemma in verses 1 and 2. We have a great inadequacy. That's verse 3. The great inadequacy is that there is no one. The word no one as we find it in verse 3 is prominent. It's the immediate answer to the question. None. Absolute emptiness. Complete inability. No one can take that scroll from God. No one has access to that throne. No one has a right to touch his hand in that way, to take that out of his hand. Says one commentator, the absolute failure to find anyone worthy shows how futile and meaningless all of history ultimately is apart from Christ. Man is utterly incapable. So impressive and weighty is this book that no created being can bear it or carry it out. Again, man is totally unable. We are morally weak and incapable. There is nothing good to commend us to God, nothing that will enable us to stand before him. We are sinners by nature indeed. We saw that in Romans all through the book, particularly in chapter 5. We are born sinners and we sin because of our sinfulness. Sin is what we pervasively do. And there is no sinner, which all of us are, who will be able to take his stand before God without Cringing. There is no sinner that can stand before God that can offer him a form of justification and righteousness that will please God. Psalm 1. The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And by the way, wicked is what all of us are apart from Christ. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. No one, everyone is incapable. No one can grasp it. We have a great dilemma in these verses. We have a great inadequacy, and that leads to a great sorrow. Verse 4, and John says, Then I began to weep greatly. This is uncontrolled weeping. He's heaving with grief. Some of you have experienced immense loss. Loss that has just driven to the depths of your soul. And you just burst into tears. Day after day after day after day. That's this. Except more. John's inconsolable, seemingly. The inadequacy of anyone to read the scroll has put John and everyone else in a horrific place. Redemption and the messianic hope now appear to be put off indefinitely. Who's going to help? Who will step into the gap? 
Who will provide for those who are incapable? And while John was weeping, he is addressed by one of the elders in heaven, verse 5. These elders are referenced in chapter 4 as well. Chapter 4, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Um, there's a lot of debate about who these refer to. It, it could be that they refer to the redeemed church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. It could be that they refer to redeemed Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the redeemed church represented by the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. It could be angelic realm. My very tentative guess is angelic realm. But honestly, we just really don't know. What is important to see from verse 5 is not the identity and who this elder is, but what he said. And what the angel says is, John, there's more to this story that you don't yet understand. That's verse 5. It's a revelation. That's the second vignette in heaven. A revelation. And the revelation is of one who is worthy. And here we find in verses 5 to 7, first, a strong rebuke. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. There's some moms out there this morning. And I I think some of you might have said this to your children. I'm in, in a less than fully sanctified moment. Stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about, right? It's almost that sense. It's not, it's not that harsh, obviously. It's a sanctified correction, but it's forceful. Stop. And it's clear that John is, is pretty much uncontrolled. The way the angel says it, it's not like John is starting to tear up. He's full in. The tears are flowing heavily. And he says, stop. Why? Behold. That is, look. Open your eyes to see something else at the throne that you've been overlooking You've been looking at the wrong thing. Yes, you've seen the throne. Yes, you've seen God. Yes, you've seen the book. But you've missed the full picture of what's in the throne room of God. And you've been looking at the scroll. And you have been looking at the wrong object to take and to open the scroll. You have been looking at created beings. You've been looking in heaven at created beings and you've been looking on the earth at created beings. You've been looking under the earth, even in hell, at created beings. You're looking for earthly answers to a heavenly question. And it won't be found there. You need to look for a heavenly solution for your earthly problem. You need to find a heavenly answer And a heavenly provision. And by the way, if you have eyes to see, that's exactly what God has given us. God has made provision. What has God provided? He has provided, first of all, a subjugating 
Messiah. At the middle and end of verse 5, we find Jesus Christ revealed in two messianic terms. Jesus is called, first of all, in verse 5, Behold, look, there is a lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Look in heaven, look at this throne, and you will find there a lion, regal, exalted, positioned as the Messiah. Now, others are called lions in Scripture as well, including Satan in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. But Jesus Christ is the lion. He is the supreme lion. To call him the lion is to emphasize his majesty and power and authority. It's to emphasize the fact that he is the king. And to call him the lion from Judah emphasizes that he has fulfilled God's promise through Jacob. This, this reference, the lion of Judah, is first given to us in Genesis 49. In the blessing of Jacob. The one who is the Lion of Judah will complete the blessing of Jacob, will complete the promise of God that he will care for his people. This is the ultimate king from God's kingly line who will destroy his enemies. Stop looking to created things. Look at the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Look also, secondly, another messianic allusion to the root of David. Look at the root of David. To call him the root suggests that a tree has been cut down, but there is a root that remains. I think I've alluded to this previously. Last year at Snowmageddon, we lost a massive line of shrubs at our house. I don't know, about 60 feet long, about 12, 15 feet tall. And just almost all of it seemed to die. But, you know, we're just hesitant to cut it all back. And a few weeks ago, we said, today's the day. We're going to cut it back. And we started cutting back. And I just said, well, I'll just, you know, I'll grab most of the big stuff. And then I get in there and I start crawling under and I see, well, it's like if I cut the dead stuff, it's like nothing's going to be left. And so now if you drive by our house, we have 12 stumps (laughs) with roots and shoots coming out. That's what happened to Israel. Israel was taken into captivity first in Egypt and then in Babylon. And then in A.D. 70, the the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And Israel appears to be cut off. Ah, but there's a root remaining. And that root that comes out of Judah will yet culminate and take the messianic throne. This is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 11. And it demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic line and the Davidic promise. And and, and even though Israel appears to be vanquished, it is not and he is not. In fact, look at what the text says. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. And you don't get the sense, at least in my translation, and I haven't looked at all the other translations, but that word overcome actually comes at the beginning of the clause. And so what the angel is telling, or what the elder is telling John is this, behold the overcomer, the lion, the root. Look at the one who is the overcomer. Look at the one who is the victor. Look at the one who is victorious. He is not vanquished. He is the victor. He is not troubled. He is triumphant. He is not defeated. He is dominant. He is not overwhelmed. He overcomes. 
This is the one. Jesus, our Messiah. As a Messiah, Jesus has the obvious credential status and acclaim to subject the world to himself, providing judgment for unrepentant sinners and redemption for the repentant. As Messiah, as the lion, as the root, he can come and take the book and break the seals and carry out all of the duties and responsibilities that are contained in that scroll. He is the authority that can judge righteously all sin and all sinners. And by the way, that process has already become. I said earlier in the message that there is a throne in heaven and that there is only one who can rightly sit on that throne. That's true. But we remember that the Godhead is triune and that there is someone who sits with the Father. Jesus himself says in 321, listen, He who overcomes, speaking about believers who persist in their faith in Christ, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The lion is not only around the throne, the lion is on the throne. It's his throne. Because He is the resurrected Savior. He is the one who has conquered all, who has conquered sin, who has conquered death, who is victorious in every way and sits exalted at the hand of the Father. This is an encouragement to us, O brothers and sisters, that everything wrong that happens in this world will be made right. God's purposes will not be thwarted. And I know a lot of you are carrying heavy burdens today. You're weighted down by trial and trouble and suffering and hardship and sin that you've committed and sin that has been committed against you. Oh, friend, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And he's at the throne of God and he is on the throne of God and you can trust him to continue to overcome. There's another revelation. It's in verse 6. It is of a standing slain lamb. Here is the central explanation of the glory of Christ in this passage. Verse 5, John listens to the elder. And the elder instructs him about the Messiah Jesus. And he tells him, look. And when he finally turns and looks in verse 6, what do you expect him to see? A lion. But he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb standing. The lamb is doing what lambs should be doing. He's standing. He's alive. Interesting note about this word lamb. Only John uses this word. He uses it 30 times. He uses it once in his gospel and he uses it 29 times in the book of Revelation. It's the only place this word is found. 
28 of the 29 references in Revelation are to Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb. He is the standing Lamb. As we go through this book and we see this Lamb throughout this book, we will find that He is the worshipped Lamb. He is the wrathful Lamb, chapter 6. He is the shepherd lamb, verse chapter 7. He is the lamb who rules in hell, chapter 14. He is the warrior lamb in 17. And he is the lamb who is the groom for the, for, uh, the, the church that he has redeemed, chapter 19. But here also, he is the slain lamb. And I saw... Between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. The word slain indicates that he was slaughtered. This is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. But it points to the fact not just that he was slaughtered once, but that he continues in the state of being slaughtered. That is, his death perpetuates. His death continues to have effect even though it happened only one time. It does not mean that he's perpetually dead, but that the effect of his death is continual. He is the perpetually sacrificed lamb. But the picture in heaven is not that he is dead and has remained dead. But the picture in heaven is that he is alive and he remains alive. He has been sacrificed, but he is now standing. In the years that our children were living at home with us, we had numerous pets. We had dogs. We had cats. Um, we babysat um, a bird for a week, and I said, never again. We had rabbits for six weeks. We don't want to know what happened to them. Uh, we had fish. And many occasion, animals would disappear. Fish would turn up floating at the top of the fish tank. And we'd have to have a service. I dug many a hole in the backyard. Replacing a dead animal. When the Israelites went to worship. And they brought their live animals to worship. They always left without the animal. The animal was always sacrificed. And it always remained there. In that sacrifice state. But when John looks into heaven. He sees the Christ who is sacrificed. And he sees him standing. Not just alive. But resurrected. Not just resurrected. But perpetually resurrected. So Jesus says of himself in this book. In chapter 1. He says to John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. One seventeen and 18. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive evermore. Chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. 
says this. He was dead, but oh friend, he is alive, he is resurrected, and he stands alive and erect in the sight of all the heavenly realm, even at this instant. He's perpetually resurrected. He's not merely resuscitated like Lazarus, but he has been resurrected to an eternal life. He has come to life and he has remained alive. But even more than slain and resurrected, notice where the vision places him. John says at the beginning of verse 6, And I saw between the throne. And that has raised some question, like between the throne. Like the throne is split in two or like between the throne and what? I think what John means us to understand is that he's at the throne and he is surrounded by these other beings, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. They are around the throne between and he is between them and the throne of God. What we need to understand is this. He is not just he is not just slain. He is not just resurrected, but he is at the throne of God. And he has heavenly position. In that throne. He has access to and is at the center of heaven itself. He is standing at the place where no one else can stand. He is going into the place where no one else can enter. Others may be around the throne of God. But he is at the throne of God. He gives us a further picture of this lamb. This is not what Jesus looks like. This is the vision. This is a picture It's figurative. But he wants us to understand the significance of the Lamb who is resurrected after his crucifixion. And he says he is standing as if slain. And he has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He has seven horns. The horn biblically refers to strength. And the the word, the number seven, always refers to perfection or completeness. And what John would have us to understand is that even while he is a lamb, meek and mild, he has all authority and all power. He has ability that is beyond all things. He is omnipotent. Death has not weakened his strength. He has seven eyes. That is, he sees perfectly. He knows all things and he is all wise. He is omniscient in his knowledge. And in his knowledge, he sends out the seven spirits of God, which we understand from the rest rest of Revelation is a picture of the perfection of the Holy Spirit. He controls the Holy Spirit. Listen, brothers and sisters. This is an atypical lamb, isn't it? Our kids raised animals. Once we did um, 4-H Rabbits, that's as far as I dared go. We never raised lambs, but I've seen lambs. I've seen them at the stock show. They're not very intimidating looking creatures. But this lamb is. He has all authority and all power. There is none like this resurrected lamb. And this, verse 6 is why the elder says to John in verse 5, Stop weeping! I'm aware of something which you are either unaware of or you are ignoring or have forgotten. 
There is a provision for one who can take the book from God the Father and redeem sinners and rectify all sin and all suffering. Listen, if Christ had only been a man and not God, or if he had only been God and not a man, or if Christ had not fulfilled every demand of the law, or if Christ had only died and not been resurrected, or only been resuscitated briefly and then died again like Lazarus and others did, then John's weeping and ours would be more than appropriate. We'd be absolutely hopeless. But Jesus Christ was the God-man, and He did fulfill the law, and He did die, and He was resurrected, and He has remained resurrected. And we can stop weeping. Because He is capable Every day, you and I are confronted with our weakness. We need to eat several times a day. Our bodies deteriorate even with exercise. We need sleep nightly. We are forgetful. We sin. We can do nothing to exonerate ourselves. That's our great grief and our great guilt. But when we look at the condition of our souls, it is hopeless. And we need to hear these words, stop weeping, look to Jesus who is resurrected. There's the revelation. A standing slain lamb. And then verse 7. A sovereign judge. Remember how this chapter opens? Who's worthy to open the book? And everywhere John looks, no one can be found. And then verse 7. And he came. And he took the book out of the right hand of him. Who sat on the throne. Now we have the answer. Jesus who is at the center of heaven. With access to the throne. Seated alongside the father. Reaches out. And takes the book. Rightly. From the father. No one else can open the book. Or look into this book. But Jesus has the authority. To take the book from the father. And possess it. And fulfill it. There's actually a prophecy. That anticipates this. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says in that vision of heaven in verses 13 and 14, he says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, getting authority from the Father to carry out all that God has planned for his creation. That's what's going on in verse 7 of Revelation 5. The prophecy in Daniel and the action in this verse demonstrate that Jesus Christ has the authority to enact the judgments in this book. He really is a sovereign judge. He really is one who has subjugated all of the universe. He is able and powerful to demonstrate his righteous wrath against sin. And he is powerful to redeem and keep men from his wrath by applying his blood to them. Listen, he will take the book. 
He will open it. And He will judge from it. And the vision in this book, it's going to begin shortly. In chapter 6, verse 1. He is powerful to do it. And He will do it. And it will culminate in chapter 20 with a final judgment from the, with the Father at the great white throne. And we see here that there is accountability to this Lamb. Yes, He's a Lamb, but there's accountability. He's powerful. Powerful to judge all men, all sinners. No sinner will escape the One who sees all sin. But there's also grace from this Lamb. He who died to pay the penalty from your sin and to free you from the power of sin makes that freedom available to you. Chapter 1, verse 5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. He came to free you. And as the Lamb, He makes that available to you. Friend, if you are here this morning on Easter Sunday, praise the Lord that you're here. There's no better place to be on a Sunday morning, on Easter morning, than to be gathered with God's people and to worship together with God's people, the risen Jesus Christ. But if you are here as not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not entrusted your soul to Him, then hear this. You are utterly incapable to satisfy God with your inept attempts at righteousness. You can't go to His throne on your own. You can't grab that book from His hand and say, I'm worthy. You are utterly unworthy and incapable. Ah, but there is one who is worthy. And you must trust Him. You must believe that Jesus did satisfy God's requirement of righteousness and that only by His death your sin can be washed away so that you are not accountable for it. You must believe that He is worthy of living for in eternity and today. And you must believe that He is the only way that you can truly live. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in Him, if you don't want Him in heaven, then I appeal to you, please, turn away from your sin and your self-righteousness and run to Him and cling to Him as your only hope. That is your only hope. There is a third and final vignette in this picture. It is an exaltation of the one who is worthy. How does one respond to this slain and exalted lamb? We find this in verses 8 through 14. We'll move through this rather quickly. Notice verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures... The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I think the prayers of the saints simply alludes to the fact that the God's people in heaven and on earth have been praying for this day. And the prayers have been heard in heaven and they are now presented to God as a fulfillment of those prayers in Jesus Christ. 
They fall down. They worship the Lamb who is worthy of worship. And they sing a new song. That little phrase, new song, it's, it's used often in the Old Testament. And every time a new song is sung, it's because a new revelation about redemption. And so here's the fullness of redemption that demands a new kind of a song. We need to, we need to sing something new because of the fullness of what we see at the throne room of God. And the new song says this, verse 9, Worthy are you to take the book and break the seals. Why are you worthy? Because you were slain and you purchased for God. You purchased on behalf of God with your blood. That is, your blood was the thing that made the purchase. It was the payment price. Men, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, every ethnicity is going to be in heaven. The blood of Jesus Christ is adequate for any ethnicity, any person, any gender, any age. And people from all of those places will be in heaven because Christ's blood has atoned for them. And you made them to be kingdom and priests to our God. They're servants of God. Not only servants of God, but they will serve with God. Notice the end of verse 10. They will reign upon the earth. That is, God's people will become co-regents with Him. We find that in chapter 20. Also find that at the end of Daniel chapter 7. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Uh Uh-oh. There were four living creatures, 24 elders. And now they are being encircled, I think, in concentric circles around this throne by many more angels. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This is an uncountable number of angels around this throne. And they are echoing what has already been sung in verse 9. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Not only to purchase for people, but he is worthy to receive the blessing of power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He is worthy to be exalted because he is the slain and resurrected Lamb of God. And every created thing which is in heaven. So now the concentric circle encompasses everyone that is in heaven at that moment, but not only in heaven, but on the earth and under the earth and on the sea. Every living creature that has ever been created will exalt the resurrected Jesus Christ and the exalted Jesus Christ. And they will say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. Truly, it's the truth. It's the truth. I want you to see one more thing about this. There's something really astounding. In Job 38, we see the angels at creation. And they're singing. They see God's handiwork in creation. And they just can't stop themselves from singing. And shortly after that creation, sin enters the world. And the angels stop singing. Now the angels talk in heaven. They make declaration in heaven. So we see the angel, angels in 
Isaiah chapter 6, declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And we see the declaration of the angels in Luke chapter 2 at the birth of Jesus Christ. But it's a declaration. It's not an exaltation that explodes into song. And here, in this chapter, when the fulfillment of redemption is accomplished, now the angels sing again. They explode in praise and song as they delight in the consummation of God's plan of redemption and the resurrected and exalted Lamb. You've come to worship on resurrection morning. What's the message of this chapter? The message of this chapter is the resurrected lion is able to rightly judge all sin. No sin against you is going to go unpunished. And no sin that you commit is going to go unpunished. But the message also is that the resurrected lamb is able to apply his blood to my sin and your sin. So that we are freed from his judgment and our enslavement to sin. The sin that has entangled us and ensnared us is not the final word in our lives. And it's also a reminder that if Christ is worthy of worship in eternity, he is worthy of worship today. Our lives are for Him today. In his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis seems to base one scene in that book on this chapter. He writes this, Between the children and the foot of the sky, there was something so white on the green grass that even with their eagle's eyes, they could hardly look at it. They came on and saw that it was a lamb. Come and have breakfast, said the lamb in its sweet, milky voice. Then they noticed for the first time that there was a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it. They sat down and ate the fish and it was the most delicious food they had ever tasted. Please, lamb, said Lucy. Is this the the way to Aslan's country? Aslan, of course, being the Christ figure appearing as the great lion. Is this the way to Aslan's country? There is a way into my country from all the world, said the lamb. But as he spoke, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold and his size changed. And he was Aslan himself towering above them and scattering light from his mane. And then he said, I will not tell you how long or short the way will be, only that it lies across the river. But do not fear that. For I am the great bridge builder. What will we say about this exalted, slain, standing, exalted lamb? The lion who is the slain, exalted lamb. We will say that he is worthy to redeem sinners. He is worthy to rule over unrepentant sinners. And he is worthy of our worship and our lives now and in eternity. Our Father, we thank you for this amazing Savior, Jesus Christ. We never tire of this story. We have read of the death of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ.